guys, what's happening? Lee Jones here from Jonah Football, back with another unbelievable podcast. I've got the legend, Shane Murray, who's got a Leeds top on, by the way. That might be a bit of a giveaway. And I've got my legend, Jules, in bottom left. And another amazing guest for you today, guys. I don't know what more we can do. The guests keep rolling in. Again, today, guys, an absolute legend of the game. Uh, are you ready for this intro or what? Because it's phenomenal. <laughs> Done a bit of research. Here we go. Right. Pleasure to introduce a fantastic player who's had a great career in English football. He made 87 appearances in the English top flight and reached the Champions League semi-final with one of the biggest clubs in the country. This is a man who played for the likes of Sunderland, Leeds, Newcastle United and Bolton Wanderers, to name a few. He's played with some fantastic players, including Alan Shearer, JJ Okocha and Harry Kuehl. He finished his career playing with the Newcastle Jets in the A-League and is now a much-respected pundit for Off The Sport. It is my pleasure to introduce to the podcast, Michael Bridges. 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 Boys, pleasure to be here. It's a good job he didn't name all my clubs, by the way. It would have taken yeah. up the whole hour of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong, mate. I know. Just name some of the big ones, mate, you know. Kept it simple. No, it's good to be on. Thanks for having us, lads. I'd like to say I've been following you, uh, Lee, for quite a while, mate. Uh, our password crossed via a lost iPad that I found. I and know. I managed to track you down. It's actually on my intro, mate, about how you are actually on this podcast, which is I lost my iPad. Um, there you go. And I remember one of my friends being like, here's the number. Give, it a, give this number a call. He's got your iPad. So I called it. And it went to your voicemail and it was like, hello, this is Michael Bridges. And I was like, the Michael Bridges. And I just, I, I couldn't believe that you ended up having my iPad. Um, well, I was going to take it, but it started tracking it. So I thought I'd better <laughs> ring you, mate. I was getting a bit worried. I remember you saying, I don't want to turn it on, Lee, just in case the police turn up at my door. <laughs> All good, uh, mate. And now, and, great and now job you are doing, lads. I appreciate it and it's great to be on. So let, let's crack on. Oh, yeah, nice. I can't believe that it's ended up like this, but yeah, it's it's crazy. And now, obviously, we've created a great relationship, and I'm sure we, after all this COVID nineteen's gone, we'll we'll get together and have a coffee with the boys as well. Sounds good. How's how's it all been for you then? This this situation. I know we've been talking on the phone. You know, obviously, you're working for Optus at the minute, and I know that you've been doing a bit of online sessions. But how's it all been going for you? Yeah, to, to be honest with you, it's, it hasn't been too different for me and the family. I've got twin boy and girl, uh, they're age 13, my wife. So they're, they're used to having FaceTime with, it, with their grandparents and family back home in the UK. So that wasn't a real tough shift for a lot of families that have experienced that over here in, Aus in Australia that are living and not being able to go and cuddle their grandparents and go and see them. They, so that, that was not new to us. So we were doing the right thing, staying indoors as a family. The thing that's really affected my, my son and daughter is the outdoor activities and not being able to get themselves out and play with their friends because my, my daughter loves her football. She's part of the Emerging Jets programme. My son just loves going outdoors. He's, he's terrible at football, to be fair. It's a big burden for me. I've tried. He didn't so good about that. Really struggling with that aspect of not being able to get outdoors and exercise. So, it, I, you know, I've been a footballer in, all your life and then going into coaching. It becomes a, a lifestyle, a lifestyle that's structured, and I'm not saying military because we're nowhere near what them, you know, what they they, they do in the army. But it, it becomes your norm. You get up, you know when you're going to train, you know what you're going to be doing for the rest of the day. Everything's planned. It's exercise, stay fit. 
So I said to the kids, you've got to do stuff. We're going to do it together as a family. They've got to do either 10,000 steps. They've got to go on a bike ride for themselves um, and get it in or sit in the garage and sit on the spinning bikes. We'll do homeschooling together. That was a challenge that I wasn't wasn't ready for. I've got to be honest with you. Yeah. But it was just giving them some structure um, to keep them on the norm, to stop them drifting. And they've been doing the online stuff with their teachers. So that was great. And from my side of it, I would normally work for Optus, uh, maybe do eight shows a month for them. And that would be covering Champions League or Premier League or doing podcast shows and things. So I really enjoy that. But I've been absolutely inundated over the last few months because people have been looking for things to keep them entertained. So we've been doing a, a trivia quiz every night online, which has been fantastic. Uh, me, John, um, John Aloisi and Mark Swarter competing interacting with fans, getting them getting them involved and just trying to answer questions for them as well and mentoring podcasts like I'm doing with you guys. And you know, it's really, really been good for me. I've really enjoyed going back and speaking to a lot of my ex-colleagues and managers and interviewing them myself as well for Optus. So for, Peter Reed was the first guy that gave me a start. Now for me to interview him and ask him some questions as to why he did things with me, what was the reason for it? Um, it, it was fascinating. So I've really enjoyed that. I've been inundated with stuff like that, but I've really missed the coaching because we coach a lamp and Jaffers, which is a state league team in the MPL. And having to try to not go out and coach and be able to do that, it's been very tough because I, I love to be active yeah. and do things. So I <clears throat> took the leaf out of your book. I went to Optus and I said, can we do an online coaching session with some kids? Um uh, you know, in our in the region Newcastle, but we were going to trial that on Optus just so I'd give them some ball mastery skills. I got nowhere near your level 19 and 20. I tried, but I didn't have the quick fit that you've all shown. But it was just good because it was the interaction with the kids and mentoring. So we've tried to keep as many people engaged as we can and focus because there's going to be a lot of mental health issues come from this. I think we're very lucky in Australia, but around the world, especially in, in England and mm. Europe, there's going to be a lot of obesity. There's going to be mental health issues and people are going out the, the tree looking for things to do. So if we could play yeah. a part in that and myself, it, it's been fantastic to know that we could help others out um, in, in that regard. So as a family, mate, we, we've handled it very, very well, thankfully. Yeah, that's Love amazing. It. I think me, Jules and Shane had the, a similar reaction. It was like, a couple of days of, oh, what should we do? And then all of a sudden, I think, you know, we just improvised and it ended up being something really beneficial for us because now we're still doing them. We're still doing the online sessions and just trying to keep everyone active, like you said, because there's going to be a lot of ongoing issues, I think, when this virus yeah. is gone. You and and what, I, what I respect about what you guys have been doing as well, they, <clears throat> you see all these footballers online. I've been watching the lads back home. Robbie Keane, he made, he's in his back garden. He's got he's got ten acres. You know what I mean? He's got his goals set up, and they're doing all these training drills. Robbie Savage with the big back gardens. Uh, people aren't blessed like that. They haven't got that much access to space. People are living in apartment blocks. So when you you guys were doing it, and I was doing it from my garage, it's just all little intricate ball mastery skills, and it's amazing how much bloody fitness and a sweat on you can get just by doing <laughs> that kind <laughs> of work. And that, that's been an eye-opener. And I think a, a thing that people have realized as well that have been doing your sessions and getting engaged, they've been thinking, wow, they, you know, this is, this is a hell of a level of fitness. So it's, that is the reality of people having that kind of confined space. Nobody has the luxury of being able to get mm, outdoors. Yeah. Um, now we do restrictions easing, which is great. So we can get out and hopefully we can just, I think we're on that way in Australia, I'm hoping. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll wait and see. 
I know Jules almost tackled his bedroom door dude, trying to do a few skills a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> hard, mate. It's hard on the left peg. <laughs> Not for Bridgie. Like Bridgie's both feet. Like me, you know? That's just for standing on that left foot of mine. <laughs> yeah, mate. Love it. Love it. Bridgie, I want to. I just want to have a quick chat about them shirts behind you. I think. Yeah. I think everyone that's got everyone that's going to be watching on our YouTube channel. There's a few shirts there, Bridgie. I think well, it's. Mate, I think it's do you want us to little, pick the camera up a little bit and have a little wonder? Yeah, go yeah, for go it. Yeah. That would be amazing. I'll just take you over here. So it all started, the journey started over here with this club here. You mentioned it before, that Sunderland Football Club. So I was, um, I was a 16-year-old lad that came in as an apprentice to play for that club uh, under the guidance of Peter Reid. I'd had setbacks from Newcastle School of Excellence when I was there from the age of 12 to 14. And I was told I wasn't good enough, so I was, you know, I was absolutely devastated. I cried for about three weeks. Uh, my father really gave us a lot of mentoring and said, you've got to practice. You've got to be in the back garden with me. We've got to do extras. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you'll get another opportunity. I got that opportunity with Middlesbrough at the age of 15 for a two-week trial. Again, failed and didn't, didn't get to make the apprenticeship or the scholarship that we have these days, which was another massive blow. Third time lucky. I went to Sixth Form College to study to be a teacher. We had a cracking football team at school and a scout came to watch me and another player and lo and behold, he was from Sunderland Football Club and because of my age, Lee, what happened? The, at school, I was always the youngest in the year but in yeah. football, I was able to drop back to become the oldest so my birthday, which I'm a 5th of August in England, actually saved my football career because I could, the lads that went on to be first year pros at Sunderland that I missed out in were second years, and I dropped back to be a first year because I carried on my studies at uni. So ah. my birthday saved us, mate. And that is where it all started with Sunderland Football Club. Um, got my first appearance against Port Vale at the age, just before my 17th birthday. Yeah, just the first, in the first team? Yeah, yeah. Seven, uh, I would have just had my 17th birthday, sorry, just after. It was a, it was a, a role, like a mad... A mad and you've got uh, that England top there next to it. Then we've got the England jersey. Yeah, got that one there. That was from the... So this was a game. Funny story, another classic. This shirt here is the England jersey. I don't know if you can zoom in, but it says England 3, Scotland 0, under 18s. This oh. is the jersey from the Scotland team that I swapped. All right? So that's from the same game. Peter Reid got us in the office on the four days before that, and he said, you've got a decision to make, young man. He said, who do you want to play for, Scotland or England? And I said, what? What do you mean? He said, well, listen, there's a... There's a match on, and it's actually going to be a qualifying game, and England are playing Scotland, and you've got a choice to make because you have Scottish grandparents. Who do you want to play for? But you can't change once you make the decision. Now, he was sat there with a guy called Rick Spurge, who was my son and youth team coach. Wow. And he was Scottish. And really said to us, if you don't sign for England or play for England, you'll never play for this club ever again. And the youth team manager said, if you, don't, if you play for us, don't pick Scotland, you'll never play for the youth team ever again. Wow. So I chose England, um, and Peter Reid gave us the opportunity. So that was that was the the, the oh, dilemma wow. of having your gaffer at the age of seventeen deciding where your future is going to be. It, it's a funny one to go back on. Um, <laughs> that one there, Roma. Oh, that looks Crazy. juicy. That one. Roma, Harry Kuehl, one nil win over Roma. Now oh, Brazilian defender three. Aldair. Oh. Mate, he kicked me from that, pillar to post. He punched me. He nipped us. He gave us a nipple gripple around the back. He pulled me hair. <laughs> he was um, he was a ruthless defender. Um, that team there, uh, that was probably there's two, there's two massive results I had in my career um, against the big dogs that I call big teams in Europe. 
the one nil win over Roma, they had Del Vecchio, Montella, Totti, De Rossi, um, Candela, oh. Cafu, and oh. Aldair. It was a okay. it was an amazing team. And I would just stand. I used to stand there with Harry Keel, thinking, "What am I doing here, man? It's like I don't <laughs> belong in this stadium." But we got the result. Um, we played AC Milan. Yeah, that was. I wanted Maldini's shirt. I couldn't get it, so I ended up with Costa Curtis. Harry oh. Keel got Maldini's. Um, again, another one 0 victory over AC Milan. Just a special night to to beat to beat them at Elland Road. The the fans went absolutely. It was just Change. a crazy night. It Change was a wet night. Dida Dida yeah. missed the ball. It went <laughs> through his hands. So that was one. And then this one, which is the this is my pride and joy. I think every kid yeah. aspires to play for Barcelona. Um, that was at the Camp Nou. Now, forget the score. We got smashed 4-0. <laughs> it was, we were 4-0 down after about 20 minutes, mate. Um, so that's wow. not one. To, it's, it's a great shirt, but not a, not a night to remember. But I think it did was... Did you start in that game, that was, Bridgie? Say? Did you start in that game? I did, mate. Oh, I was stood there next to Alan Smith, and I've got Frank... That's Frank the Ball shirt there. And wow. It was just, uh, just an incredible... Incredible um, occasion. To be fair, I remember looking for me, my mother and father in the in the ground. Now at the new camp, they're like ants. You couldn't see them anywhere, man. And as I looked around, I saw the scoreboard and we're getting beat 3-0. I thought, Christ, I better start pulling my finger out here. But they, we just couldn't get hold of them. It, it, was, it was a massive wake-up call to to realise your Cliverts, your Overmars, your... A massive influence, Philip Cocker, Rafield, and they're, they're probably the best player. You talk about defenders and everybody like Maldini, great players, but the best player I've ever played against was in that game, and it was a guy called Rivaldo. I have never seen anything like it. He was tall, he was strong, his feet were. Wow. He, he, he just shift the ball away from anybody, mate. So I, I look back at them games, and that's why I've got them, got them um, hanging up there, just for, for great yeah, memories. And it makes yeah. you realize where, where you've where you've been and the memories are good. Do you know what I mean? But it, it's also a humbling thing as well because I, I still pinch myself and think, what the hell were you doing there? <laughs> yeah, 100%. We, we want, um, we're trying to gather shirts for everyone that comes on our podcast. So uh, we, we wouldn't mind a, a Bridges shirt, mate, signed to the Jonah team if possible. Mate, I'll see Crazy what I've got. I'm not shame, getting mate. any of them on the wall, lad. No chance. Nah, <laughs> it's all right. Sure, we'll be happy with a Leeds one, mate. The, the Leeds one would be good for Shane. Just to just, uh, come on the office there on the wall. Well, do you know what it is? I tried. I normally tried to keep a shirt from every club I played off for memories, the home and away shirt. <clears throat> and it wasn't until I was going through all the shirts. We, I did something for a, for a group of lads back in the UK called the um, Classic Football Shirts. And they wanted to see what was in your, in your closet. So I got them all out and I couldn't find any Hull City shirts that I'd played for Hull City. So that was a, I was proper devastated. And also um, Sydney FC when I played for them. I realised that I'd give them all away for charity and auctions, but I used to always keep hold of one. So um, I'm, I'm down the bare bones. Otherwise, I'm taking stuff out. But I will have a look for you. All right. Yeah, yeah right. That. Even if we, just, even if Shane just sends you that one and you sign it, innit, Shane? Yeah, just sign us this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll sign it when we have a coffee next time, and I'll see what I've got. That's nice. Like yeah, it, Bridgie. So you're a Tottenham fan, then, Bridgie? Yeah, I knew this was going to come up because obviously Jules is going to give us some stick here, isn't he? <laughs> oh, no. look, there's not much to say. How did you end up being a, a Spurs fan? Yeah, I was going to ask that question. So the I'm from Newcastle, which is the north, obviously the northeast of England, and at a young age, the whole family were black and white supporters. So I'd, uh, my my childhood was getting on the train on a Saturday morning with my father. The Metro, as we called it, would get on, 
rain, hail, sunshine, you name it, sleep, we'd get on there, we'd get the train up to St. James's Park, I'd get a cup of Bovril, I'd sit with my dad, he'd have a cup of tea or a beer, and that, that was my lifestyle up to the age of eight, watching Newcastle United play. And you, I'm not sure if you lads will remember, but in England we had a, a paper in the northeast called The Pink, and after the game, you would have to wait for about an hour and a half, and then the, the pink paper would be printed, and it would be all the scores from around the country that would come in and, and a match report on each of them. How they did it in such a short turnaround time, I'll never know. But that was the dinner time on a Saturday night, reading the articles, seeing what the players' ratings got. And it was just a, a, a Newcastle United fan. But the reason I went there was to watch the likes of Peter Beardsley and Chrissy Waddle and Paul Gascoigne. They were entertainers. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I, I used to model my... I had the mullet, the Chrissy Waddle mullet. <laughs> I had the worst left foot in the world. I was all right-footed, but I used to practice on my left foot, re, you know, re, regular. And it was all to be like Chris Waddle. And he used to have a little bit of a, a swagger waddle. He walked with like a bit of a limp and it was <laughs> yeah, a lazy yeah, look. Yeah. And I tried to I tried to emulate that. And it's amazing you think what, what kind of influence players have on, on youngsters these days. And it was the same back back then. And it was just a man I admired, Chris Waddle. Anyway, he left Newcastle. He went to Tottenham Hotspur. I cried my eyes out and I said, Dad, I don't want to go to the games anymore if he's not going to be there. So shirts weren't ready available back back then like they are now and my dad rang one of his mates up in London he posted up a Tottenham Hotspur jersey my father came and he said there you go son you can support Tottenham now and follow Chris Waddle and I'll never forget I said to him am I allowed to do that thinking that it would betray the family trust and the rest (laughs) is history and then Paul Gascoigne sang not long after Uh, so we had a Waddler in Gaza so that was it it just stuck from then on in and many years of hurt (laughs) yeah (laughs) I seen your reaction for um, on Optus Sport. I seen it on your Instagram when Tottenham made the final, oh, when Lucas Moura scored. Yeah, it was it was. I mean, if you think of the two semi-finals that year, the massive think, yeah. Liverpool pulled themselves out against Barca, and then the Tottenham one. It was just incredible. And that's I went mental in the studio. Like people thought I was I wasn't going to be able to go on air because I was just lose. I was just losing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely losing it. But that that's the joy. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're you're a fan or a pundit or whatever. You you, you you've got you've got them emotions in football. That's why we love it. And yeah, even yeah. though the final was an absolute, probably the worst game in in, in Champions League history, it was Don't horrendous. Really care, but, long, yeah, long I was very won, excited, mate. Very excited. Nah, it was amazing. Um. I just wanted to ask you about the Optus Sport, actually. Um, what what was it like for you transitioning, you know, from like football professional football player into maybe a coach and then onto Optus Sport? How how did you find that? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question because there's a lot of there's a lot of players, um, not just in football but actually sports people in general that come to the end of their careers. And I, I call it spaghetti junction. When you come around about and there's just there's that angle there, there's that angle there. You, you meet a lot of people in sports and you, you take it for granted. So you meet a lot of people on the way up. And I always say to people, whoever you meet on the way up, if you're, if you're gracious and you, you, you're thankful and you, you're respectful, you say, you say hi and you introduce yourself, you'll meet the same people on the way down. All right. And then people, you never know who you're meeting in jobs and in life. And I used to get called the busy bumblebee at Leeds United because I would speak to all the sponsors. I would I would always talk. I, I can talk underwater and the lads would give a stick. And it's it's funny. I always say I always used to say to them, well, you know, I just love talking. You never know who you're gonna meet. And since since obviously retirement and you go down the other side, you're a piece of meat. So if you've been an arsehole and people don't want to know you, 
they're not going to give you an opportunity after football. So I've, I it's paid dividends in that respect. But I've got to be honest with you, it was very, very tough once I had gone from a player to make that transition into the coach. I'll, I, sorry, it was, that was a nice transition. The hard part was when I resigned from being a coach with the Newcastle Jets um, for reasons that I did, you know, I fell out with a guy called Nathan Tinkler, who was the, the owner of the, the club, but he wasn't paying the players or the staff. There was a few things were done where he sacked some players and staff members, and it didn't sit well with me. So I wanted to keep me integrity and the loyalty. And I said, I went in, I resigned. And it was the following three or four weeks after that, I'm going, what am I going to do here? It's been an amazing lifestyle as a footballer. You've had that taste of coaching. And now what, what I was missing, I was waking up every morning. There was no banter with the, there was, there was no banter. You weren't going in with a structured environment. I was, you were looking for things to do. And I found it very, very, very tough. Uh, and I went to see somebody about that uh, in our region in Newcastle just to get a bit of direction. And he, he just did this roundabout. And he said, listen, what are you good at? You, you're a footballer. You put a, a, a road going off that way. He said, you, you enjoy, you've done a bit of the media. He said, you do that. You've you opened up a bar and a restaurant in hospitality, can you believe? Because I, huh? I wanted to meet people. So there was all these different avenues. He said, you've got to focus and find the ones that suit what you need because you're getting pulled from here, there, and everywhere. You're trying to do too much or you're not doing enough. And it was an unbelievable just sit down to get some direction in life as to where I wanted to go. And that was when I, the, the media came. I'm still doing analysts on football. You're talking about something you love. You're, you're engaging with people again. And that's what, that's what I found. It was a real good safety net for me when I was going through a very difficult period in, in life and the transition from being wanted and being involved in a football environment all your life, 20-odd, 30-odd years, by the way, to go and have it, to not being involved in that environment anymore. That was a hard thing. And it made us realize people that go away and work in the army and do things and go to war, they're in Afghan, they're, they're disciplined all their life. And then when they come out of that, you've got no discipline. There's nobody giving you the authority. There's nobody giving you the rules. It's, it's a huge curve. And that's why there's a lot of men's health issues because you haven't, you've, you haven't been given that extra focus. How do I care about myself after, after life in the industry that we are in? So it was, it was a real eye-opener, mate. And I've, I knew the two things that I enjoyed doing, that was media and coaching. And they're the two things that I've focused on, um, apart from obviously my family life. They're, that's where I've put all my interest into the media with Optus or with SBS and obviously doing the coaching badges. So it, it took a long time, uh, but we got there. And it was just, it, it was a, a case of asking for help as well. If you're struggling, you need to ask, out, ask about stuff. Yeah, 100%. That, that's... Bridge I've got. I was just going to say you're a natural at the up the sports stuff, yeah. mate. So congratulations yeah. on that, mate. You're very good, very I've, good. I've, I've just got a question, like because obviously you're talking a lot about. I think I got a bit about the, how difficult it was to transition from your usual routine of obviously having everything yeah. set out for you in football, um, and obviously I, I'm assuming that routine started from a lot younger than just when you made your debut. So obviously for all our young listeners, like when when in your life did you realize okay? this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is, and maybe I have the talent to make it. And then you had to become obviously very, very disciplined to get that chance. So what, what, when did you sort of start that process of I'm going to be? No, that's a great question, Julian. There's, there's actually a few things I can give that, that I, I use and experiences. And I've just talked about a few with Sunderland when I showed you the shirts there, how I got rejected and got told I wasn't good enough when I was at Newcastle United. 
after being there for two years at the School of Excellence. That that really hurt. That hit home. How I got rejected for a second time at Middlesbrough. I told you what what I started doing um, was obviously my dad was giving his advice. I went and I worked and I practiced really hard. And it was just whether it was with with me mates or whether it was with my father doing the little touches against the walls. Because um, I was backstreet football, unless I went up to my school field, we're from you know a place called Whitley Bay, which is not the most <laughs> endearing of places. Um, it's great for a night out, but it's um, when you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it, it was it was tough. So there was, there was that side of it, the hard work, um, also trying to prove people wrong. I'll never forget the coach that was at Newcastle, John Carver. He went on to be the manager of Newcastle United. I'll never forget his face telling me I wasn't good enough. I always used that as motivation to prove him wrong one day. And that happened three years late, uh, 14, 15, 16, 17. That happened three years later when Newcastle youth team played Sunderland youth team. I scored a hat-trick and we beat them 5-0. And John Carver, the coach, came on. He went, my God, he said, you've shot away. You've grown, haven't you? I said, the only thing that I had to grow was to prove you wrong, mate. And I said, I've, I've done it. And, I, and he said, yeah, wow. I wish you all the best. So I, right, I had yeah. that mindset. And I'll never forget the guy that let us down at Middlesbrough as, as well. So I, I, I try to turn the negatives into a positive because if you dwell on the negatives, you, 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 it just goes one way. You, you spiral into nothingness. You've got, no, you've got nowhere to go. So that, that, I look back at that. There was also the school teacher at my school, Monk Seaton High School. This is a classic. I'll never forget. And this is without being big-headed or, or arrogant. This, was, this is how I, how I dealt with it. And he had a father-parents evening. And we were sat there, and my mum and dad are next to me, talking to the teacher, and I'll never forget, Davy Birch, Mr Birch. He was the football PE teacher. And I was coming to the time where I'd been rejected twice as a footballer in the options, so I'm staying on at school to do my education, to get my human movement degree, to get my sports degree, to get my maths degree. And I wanted to be a teacher, so I could still do sport and coach and get my love of the, the game that way. And it was funny, because the teacher sat there, and he said to my dad, I would have been 15. And he said, listen, there's one thing I've got to tell Michael. He's got to study a lot harder and he's got to stop dreaming about being a footballer. He's got to concentrate. Them days are gone. And I'll never oh. forget, I had to support my dad because I, I was boiling. I was ready to like, go mad. Yeah, and my dad said, listen, he said, you can't say that, Mr. Birch. He said, everybody's got to have a dream. Everybody's got to follow a dream. He said, I'm 50. Oh, I've still got a dream, mate. He said, so you, you, you must have your dreams. Don't shut other kids' dreams. So we got in the car. I'm devastated. And he said, listen, don't. are you allowed to swear on this or not? Ah, do what you want, Bridgie. Do what you want, mate. <laughs> said, don't listen, lad. Don't listen that dickhead. He said, you, you follow your dream, lad. He said, he said, you've got to study, but he said, you follow your dream. Never lose that dream of playing football. So follow my dad's advice. Anyway, a year later, you know, I'm, I'm at Sunderland. So wow. I went back to that high school. I signed for Leeds United when I would have been 19, coming up with 20. And I've gone from having no money whatsoever to signing for Leeds. And I, I drove into the school in an Aston Martin and I went I went to high school <laughs> I pulled in the car park and I'm not kidding all the kids came running out the, running out in the playground in the yard yeah. and they're like oh my god who's this who's this lovely car and it came out and I got on like oh my god my Bridges autograph and I made a beeline for Miss, Mr. Birch to go and see because I, I loved a lot of the teachers there we had a lot of a lot of and I thought I've got to go and find Mr. Birch I went to see Mr. Birch and he was in the school hall doing a, a session and a lesson it was badminton I'll never forget and he came over and he's like, Michael, it's great to see your kids. Look who's here. That's Michael Bridges. But like, oh, wow. Can, I, can the kids ask a few questions? Yeah. And one of the kids asked a question, another one. And he said, have you got any advice for the kids? And I went, 
I've got the perfect antidote for your kids. I said, everyone has had a dream, follow your dream. He told me not to follow my dream all them years ago, <laughs> and I'm here today. So that again, I, I had... I write it. I mean, this is five years later from, from being told that, and I've gone, this is the mindset. And it was funny, I was watching the Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, and I see Michael Jordan, he's got the same thing. If somebody doubts you or somebody says that you're not going to do it, I will go out of my way to make sure that I do something. And that's, that's the mindset mm. I have. So turn your weaknesses and your setbacks into positives and, and do, the, do the best you can from it. And the other one is always being, I always try to say, be on top of your game and be prepared. And I go there back go, to the Sunderlands. This is how basic it was back then. I'm going back to 94, 95 possibly. And I was given a four-week program from the football club from Sunderland before we went in for pre-season training, my first ever pre-season training. So all the first-year apprentices that were coming in were given a program. And the program was unbelievable, lads. You love this. For the first week, go out and do a one-mile run every night. Week two, go out and do a two-mile run every night. Week three, three-mile. Week four, four-mile run. Nothing to do with football or touches. It was just get the base of the foundation because you're going to basically you're going to run your life away when you come in. I went out and I did that every night with my father on the bike. I ran all around the course of Whitley Bay and I did, did it. And it paid dividends. I got into the first day of pre-season training. I blew every other apprentice away in the fitness running, whether it was first year or second year. And I, I came second in all the first team players. Mickey Gray was a guy that won the race, the, the running race around. It was like a five-mile run around the, the perimeter, the training ground. So what did I do? I planted a seed in every one of their coaches' minds there. They went, who the hell is this kid that's just come on? And that, that yeah. gave me a massive right. kickstart and a head start on all the other lads. They were all playing catch-up. And then when we started doing the ball work in the games, I just went like that. And I was training with the reserves, scoring goals, first team. So it was because I went and did the hard yards beforehand. A lot of lads just didn't do it and then turned up a pre-season and think they'd already made it. And I, I always mm. wanted to win everything I did. That's really that's yeah, your that. your famous true. quote, isn't it, Shane? Don't let anyone tell you that you're not good enough. No, but that's it, because some yeah. people like work off different things, but I feel like I'm very similar to Bridgie that it's about people doubting you and then you just go out and prove them wrong, you know? And and, and that some people feed off different things, but that's something I've always fed off as well to try and Shane, that, doesn't ju- that doesn't just happen. You, you, it's all good and well saying it, but like you, you must go and do something about that as well. If somebody doubts you, you go, right, well, how do I, how do I doubt them and prove them wrong? Yeah, what yeah, have yeah. I, What have I got to do? Do no, you know what I mean? Yeah, cool. I think one thing that's pretty common throughout all the podcasts we've been doing, like some amazing people have come on board, and it's very, very cliched, but everyone keeps repeating it. And I think all the listeners have to pay attention to it is that no matter whether, no matter whether it's cliche yourself, Alfie, like you, you, all of you just keep talking about how hard you worked, how hard you worked, worked hard, worked hard away from training at training, like just this different mindset where it was all about it was winning. Work. And I know it's very it, cliche. It's winning. I, I, I cannot stand. I've got 13 year old kids. If I lose at Monopoly, I cannot stand losing. I will, <laughs> I will think of a, some solution. I'm, how do I get, how do I get Park Lane and Mayfair next week to beat these two? It's, <laughs> now, it, I, the, I think everybody wants to be a winner, but it's how much you will do without crossing that line. Um, mm. And there was one lad I'll never forget. I was we were playing for England, and we would have been with the under 18s or 19s here. So it was myself. And Emil Heskey were playing up top. We had a cracking team. Frankie Lampard in midfield, Rio Ferdinand actually playing as a midfielder as well at the time. Two Leeds boys, um, Jacko and Shepard, playing as two centre-halves. 
We had an unbelievable team. Um, David Thompson, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Tom and We had a cracking team. Anyway, this this lad turned up, 16-year-old kid turned up, looked at him, thought, who the hell is this? Michael Owen. Right. This, so what would happen? I was on four, £40 a week as a YTS at Sunderland, a youth apprentice. So when we went away and you got selected for England, you could claim expenses. So traveling from the northeast down, I used to pretend that I'd bought a, a ticket or a train ticket or a plane flight, but my dad would drive us down and I would claim, you didn't have to show any receipts, so I would claim that I'd paid for flights. Now my dad would let me keep the money. So you'd get paid in cash when you were there at the, at the venues. So, you know, I've got three or four weeks wages in my hand. I think, great stuff this. This thing Michael Owen turns around and what he starts doing, he starts playing pool and snooker and cards. And we're all going, oh, we'll take you on a pool. And he would clean the table up and you'd take him on a snooker and he would clean. I'm going, who is this little kid? So I went home with no money. He's got this bag of cash. We've never even heard of him. And then, he start, and then we started playing a game the following week. And my word, he, there was just something. He was nicknamed Golden Balls. I know Beckham had the same name, but we, we nicknamed Michael Golden Balls. He wanted to win at everything he did. And he, in my career, from seeing people that were lucky but wanted to, to win, wanted to win at everything he did away from the football. He, he, you could tell he had the DNA to be a winner and go all the way. And then I look at the likes of Shearer as well. They practiced after training. He was just... Alan, Alan and Michael had something where they would work so hard on their... Alan didn't really work on his weaknesses because Alan couldn't dribble a ball. Michael could. But when I saw Alan, it was just cross the ball for me and he practiced his headers, he practiced his volleys, he practiced his touches in around the box. So he just... He never did anything 1v1 or 2v2. He just wanted everything that he was good at. So he, he didn't really work on his weaknesses like I did. He mm. worked on his strengths to get better. And it was, it was a lot I took out of them too when I realised how good they were and what they did. Do you know what, Bridgie? That's, I coached Alfie last week um, for the first time, LaFondra, and that really stuck out for me as well. Um, we were doing like some basic like speed and agility and some passing stuff, and he was a bit rusty. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, like, how can a pro be a bit rusty at this? Um, but then I went into like a, a complex finishing drill and he was ridiculous. Like the, the, one of the best I've seen just in and around the box, didn't miss, a, didn't miss like a cutback cross. And I thought, well, that's why, you know, that's why he's played where he's played because that's what he's good at, you know. And the other thing that they've done, if he'd have seen the rust, rustiness coming out, he would have been embarrassed and he would have been devastated himself. And he's thinking, you better up your game here because these lads are looking for you to inspire them or do something. And so his yeah. mindset, he might have turned, been then going, oh, yeah, we'll do this. And then he's gone, hang on a minute. Let's get let's get in game mode. And you would have, yeah, seen, you would have seen the moment. He, Michael he Owen. Been... Um, yeah. He grew, he grew up where I grew up, Michael Owen. He played for Flincher. I played for Flincher too. And there was a lot of talk about Michael Owen as well. He pretty much came up in the exact same setup as me. Um, he went to Liverpool as a kid. I went to Everton. And even when I was at Everton, everyone was talking about this Michael Owen kid. But just to touch on the snooker and stuff, I've heard that he's like incredible at snooker and golf. as like golf. Unbelievable. Golf, yeah. Could, could pot balls on the snooker table. I mean, I, I'm, I was used to pool tables, you know. And yeah, he didn't have enough room. I, I couldn't he afford good. to go and play snooker. And then this kid's clean up on the snooker tables. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I remember I turned over some train a couple of times. I turned to Emil Heskey and I said to Heskey, I said, well, one of us is not going to play. I said, because he's, he's incredible at everything he does. And Heskey looked at us and remember Heskey was a big, big fella. <laughs> I was still I was still skinny, pale and freckly. And he just went, he went, well, it ain't going to be me, mate. You're the one that won't be playing. <laughs> not going to argue, big man. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, interesting. <laughs> but we had a um, cracking, we had a cracking, yeah, just a quick one on that. I've got this friendship upstairs from Thierry Henry, and it was from the oh, under 19s tournament we had in, in France, and we got the semis. And we played France, I think it was in the quarters of the semis, and we thought we had a chance because it was myself, Michael Owen, and Emil Heskey were our front three. And we got absolutely destroyed. And their front three, when I look back at the programme, they had Jared Hulley as the manager. They had Trezeguet, Henri, and Anelka were playing. That was their front three. Wow. Pace. Wow. Yeah, honestly. Jesus. You're going to send that Henri jersey <laughs> through? No, what, no, no, you don't get anywhere near that. <laughs> Come on, mate. Out in the wild, send it through. I came back from that tournament and said, my dad, I've just seen the best player in the world. And he said, who was that? I said, Thierry Henry, this kid. I said, he won't play the tournament. He was special. And at the time, he was at Monaco. And it was a year later, my dad shouted us down. It was on Sky. They went, he went, that kid you mentioned. He said, Arsene Wenger signed him at Arsenal. And he came as a, like, a left winger. And I went, oh, wait, you see this guy, dad. Hmm. And sure enough. What was he like in that team, tournament, Bridgie? He just rinsed it. He just, everything, everything he did, as, a, as you saw at Arsenal, he drifted from the left-hand side. Trezeguet played on the... Up, he, Trezeguet was down the centre, uh, and Nelka played like tucked in right, and Henri tucked in left, and he just got his he runs, the pace that he had, he shifted the ball, and the the arrogance he had as well. He, he carried this arrogance when he got the player of the tournament award. The way he carried himself, and he went up and he got the award. There was a lady who must have been about thirty three, who was beautiful presenting the award, and he actually serenaded her and did a dance with her. And I'm 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 sitting there, eighteen years of age, going, "Who the hell's this guy?" He had everything, mate. He had everything. Wow. Did, 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 Fra did France win that tournament? Um, yes, they did. Yeah, they beat Spain in the final. Ooh. Wow. Some big yeah, guys, amazing. What a I think um, want to ask you about Leeds, Bridgie, because Shane's there with a big smile on his face, and I'm sure Shane, <laughs> you've got your questions, and you're dying for it, Shane. No, I, I was going to jump in and swallowing. <laughs> obviously, um, you made your name as Sunderland. Uh, as a massive Leeds fan, and my family, obviously, I have to ask you about your time at Leeds and uh, and what if you can give us a little insight into that, even just the Champions League run and 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 how special that team that was. was it was just an incredible moment when I actually signed for Leeds because I, I'd know, I knew that they'd signed Danny Mills. O'Leary had been given the, the budget off Ridsdale to spend and basically keep some of the old old players that could be mentors, but it, we kept the core. They had Nigel Martin in goal. We had Lucas Radibi as the centre-half and we had David Batty down as the defensive midfielder. And they just had this youth team at Leeds that I could not beat or get a result against when I was playing for Sunderland. And we, you know, the, as you play against them on a on a year to year basis, you realise that some of these lads are going to be first team footballers and, and whatnot. And just to get that phone call to realise that you were going to be part of that team, I know you were mixing in with Leeds. I, I was watching them the year before on um, Super Sunday on Sky. Uh, I was just it was Leeds against Manchester United. I was going to the couple of lads what it would be like to play for one of these two teams. And then six months later, you're getting transferred and you're getting signed by that team. It was. It was a, an incredible moment and I had a lot to prove when I went to Leeds because I was coming as a Sunderland reserve player, basically. I played behind Kevin, Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips and when one of them was injured, I got a game. I, I knew where I was in the pecking order and that's why I made the decision to leave as well. I thought I'd developed that Sunderland, I'd been there and it was time to, to go. And do you know what it is? When I went and played with people like your Harry Kuehl's, that were no disrespect to Sunderland players, but the Leeds players, it was Premier League, you're talking top four in the Premier League at the time. My game went to a whole new level. There was things that I learned and developed from the coaches, but from the players as well, an understanding that took my game to a whole new level. But when I got there for the first the first week, 
I was way behind in pre-season. And I felt Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was also there, but he got sold to Atletico Madrid. And David O'Leary, again, he said, listen, I'm going to work you off, work you this pre-season. You put a bit of weight on. I've got to get you lean because you're going to be starting the first game of the season. And I'll go back to that time when I was at Sunderland doing the hard yards, putting it in before I went to pre-season. I'd let myself go in the off-season a little bit because I didn't know where I was going to be and what I was doing. And that came so natural to us. And I'll work my socks off again with the guy called Danny Hay, who's a New Zealander, just so I could get the levels of the boys and then go and, and compete. And it paid dividends again. So you think we had a young, fit team, the likes of Lee Boyers, who could blitz bleep tests. Harry Keel would blitz bleep test. If you put anything in front, he would run. But we had the ability to play football as well. So we ran teams off the park. Now, we had an amazing run. It was to do with our fitness levels, and we had players that could win, win X-Factor games. You know, Harry Keel yeah. would win a game single-handedly. We had the experience down the middle of the, the core. When I look back... And we had real success, but we, when we say success, I hate using that word because we didn't win anything. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not success. We had a very good team that went a long, long way. And I think if we, when I look back, your teams like your, your Arsenal's had an Arsene Wenger. They, they, they got a winning mentality. They won something. They knew how to get there. Man United had Alex Ferguson. They'd been there. They'd done it before. They'd won things. A lot of the players had won things before. And our Leeds team, there, there was nobody had, uh, who sorry, David Batty at Blackburn had won the Premier League. Nobody else had had that experience of, of actually getting over that, that winning line. Mm. And it's going to sound crazy. We just didn't know how to get there. We didn't have a manager who had been there neither before. He didn't have that knowledge. So if you look at the results come the end, there was two things that derailed our season. I think it was the inexperience of not knowing how to win to get over that finishing line when we were top at Christmas. And then there was the Galatasaray incident where we lost Kevin and Chris, who got stabbed in um, Istanbul. We lost two fans that were very close to us. So our first game back after the boys were stabbed and we didn't want the game to go ahead was against Jules's team, Arsenal. We went and gave our fans flowers. A lot of the players were struggling mentally. We were young boys that didn't know how to handle what had gone on. We didn't, there was more to football than, sorry, more to life than football. And we got smashed against Arsenal at home. And our, our season went like that, rapidly. And we finished, I think Man United won it that year, 22 points clear of us. And we were top at Christmas. So that, I'll put it down to that, that we didn't have a manager that knew tactically how to get us them games to get the results against Man U and Arsenal. And I'll say that because David Levy was still in his, his infancy. And a lot of the players were, and we just couldn't handle it very, very well. And we tried the following year. We signed Rio Ferdinand. We signed Mark Viduca. We signed Olivier Decor. I mean, these are, these are magnificent players. Yeah. Wow. And we went on the Champions League run. But yet again, over that final stage of how to get over the finish line, we just could not seem to get there. And we could never get League Cup runs, FA Cup runs going neither. So I just put it down to a lot of naivety. And you need to have some people in your team that know how to have done it there and been there before. Yeah, uh, I just think they struggled. So I rode the highs. It was an incredible journey to go from being, you know, playing, playing for Sunderland Football Club as a reserve player the, to being in the Stadium of Light. And then a couple of years later, you're playing for the Champions League nights and you're playing in European nights. It was incredible. But then comes the, then comes the downside of football, and that was the injuries. So I, I snapped yeah. my leg in Istanbul. I dislocated my tib and fib and snapped three ligaments around the ankle. I was told I would never play football again by the surgeon when he had a look. And 
I'll never forget the physio at the time was a guy called Dave Hancock, who went on to be managed, uh, physio for Chelsea, England, New York Knicks and the basketball. So, and now, funny enough, he's, he's actually Bono, Bono's physio. I don't know what you do with Bono, like, with your, being his physio, but he's, he had, he's had a great career, but he saved my career. So there was a check that the club were going to give me from the insurance saying you'll never play football ever again. And Dave said, the physio, it's going to be 14 months to 15 months rehab. He said, you, you love hard work. You've got the, the focus. I'll get you there. Don't take that check because you might play in some capacity. Because if you take that check, it means you can never play professional football ever again. You can never get paid for something you love. And I said, I'll take your word for it. I've, I'm only 22, 23. Let's, let's crack on. So I went through 14 months of rehab. And I'm talking long hours. It was, um, we would normally train from like 9 o'clock till 1 in the afternoon. 2 if we did a double session. I was in there from 9 to 5 with Dave. And then I would go and do rehabilitation and more work. Um, at his gymnasium from about six till eight at night. Sometimes I'd sleep at his house so we could go again. So again, I got into this routine and I got back. And it was an unbelievable feeling to get back playing reserve football again after so long out. So I'd gone from the highs, I'd had the low of the injury, not, not too low, but then I'd, I'd peaked again and got back to where I wanted to be. And seven reserve games later, David O'Leary says, you are ready. We're playing against Malaga in the UEFA Cup. Fantastic, here we go. Four minutes into the game, I heard my right uh, left Achilles tendon rupture and snap. There was a big bang. And that moment there was the moment when I knew I'd, I'd literally done 40 months out of the game. It had taken me a long time to get back. I was like, Michael Doobie did this two years ago at the same club at Leeds, and he was out for eight months to nine months. I don't know how I'm going to go through this again. And that's when I really, really struggled uh, mentally. With, I, would, I didn't know it was depression at the time, but there was moments where I would just wouldn't look at my phone. People were ringing and say, how are you doing? I would leave it. I was lying in my bed. I wouldn't answer the physio. I wouldn't go into the football club for like a week, two weeks at a time. And just, I didn't want to know anybody. I was living by myself. It was a horrible situation to, to be in. And I, again, you asked for help. And it was Dave, Dave the physio that came and family pulled around and said, you've got to give it one. You've got to give it another go. And I said, I don't know how I can go through that whole process again. I'm not, I've, I've put everything in the last one. Um, and we did. We, we got focused. We came up with a plan and a vision and a goal. And the, the goal wasn't to play Premier League football again. It was just to get back playing and loving the game again because I'd, I'd ruptured my left Achilles tendon, lost the pace. I'd damaged your right ankle. So I knew I didn't have the pace to play Premier League or Champions League football again. I still had a football and brain, but you need to play top end. You've got to have both. And I've, I've found that it was very, very tough to get back to loving the game until I found that I was um, at uh, Carlisle United once again playing on a regular basis. I found my level and it was that was uh, three years later. So I went through a hell of a lot of wow. clubs in a short period of time because I was lost in the wilderness and I didn't know what I wanted. It was very, very oh, tough. But the, so the, the highs and lows of football with, I, I call it snakes and ladders of life, it happens to everybody. You've got to find some form of common ground where you you can find a, a nice part in your life because I had football for two years and I wasn't enjoying it I wasn't because I wasn't able to do what I I wanted to do and I had to, I had to have a massive reality check on my ability as well and find my level rather than thinking I was still a Champions League footballer and why am I why am I deserve do I deserve this it's fate it happens and if I hadn't got injured yeah. I wouldn't have met my wife then at the time she got us through yeah. it and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had twin boy and girl 
So I'm a big believer in fate, man. Things happen for a reason. I totally so Leeds agree. has got some amazing memories, lads. Um, the fans, them nights, but it's also got some dark days as well. But it's there's a there's a, there's a good story in there somewhere. Yeah, love it. Yeah, love right it, Bridgie. That's quality. That's a great insight, mate. Like, kind of get got a few like got a few goosebumps listening to that story, mate. Because I think football can be a bit harsh. Where, like, for example, if if someone goes on your Wikipedia and looks at your career, they're just gonna the first thought is, oh, look at this guy he's played for so many clubs. And they, that might be a bad thought, but no one actually knows what you've been through and why why you had that situation. So for me, like that was that was decent. That was a good eye opener because I didn't obviously I didn't know you had those injuries, which caused a little bit of a decline in your career. That yeah, and it, the, you know, there's hands. nothing there's nothing worse when somebody that's, again that's says it, it comes back to that to prove them wrong. The surgeon that operated said the last time he had yeah. seen three ligaments on the inside of the ankle snapped, all three of them. Um, so the retinaculus, I can't flexus lucis longus. There you go, some good words in there. He said, the last time he had seen that happen was in a motorbike <laughs> accident because you normally do the ligaments on the outside if you do, and I'd literally snapped everything around the ankle bone with a dislocation. He said I only ever seen it in a motorbike accident. He said you will not play again. Um, and it, like wow. I say, I want to prove him wrong, but I had to have that support from the physio. Just um, just out of interest, Bridgie. Obviously, what happened in Istanbul with the fans? Were you, as players, aware of what happened before the game? Oh, we, we we knew we knew well before the game. We we had a captain in Lucas with Davy and Gary Kelly and David Batty. We looked up to as our senior pros. It was the news filtered through when we were at dinner, and we were doing our uh, dinner the night before as a team. And word came in from the media manager that two fans, Kevin and Chris. Alan was very, very um, fond and friendly with, with the lads, as a few of the boys were. And the decision was made there and then. We, if this was in England, and this happened in England to Turkish fans, we would be kicked out of the competition as a club, and the fans it would be seen as hooligan, and we would be damaged severely. So we said, we're not playing this game, we can't do it. And it was actually FIFA forced us, your know, UEFA forced us to play the game, otherwise it would be repercussions. So we, we, we were held accountable, we didn't want to do that. We made the decision the night before that we were not playing the game. Um, so yeah, we, and I, I look back, and it, it's the decisions. You, you know, if you could go into, a, if you could turn back time, there's not a lot of things I would turn back time. Like I say, even, even the injuries, I, I still say I wouldn't do that because I wouldn't have two beautiful kids. And that is the moment when I think that we should have been a lot stronger as a group of players, and actually just said, you know what it is, let's 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 stand up for what we believe in instead of being forced into this. And I think if we'd pulled together a little bit more, we could have made a massive statement in world football. But again, it's, it's all good in, in hindsight, but we, we didn't. So I still say that we were to blame for going ahead with that game when we, we, we could have just said, you know what, it is stuff it. We're not doing it because it was bang out. It was a disgrace what had happened. Yeah, well. Well, there you go, Shaz. That's incredible. Yeah, no, it's just something, obviously, I've always wondered, you know, as a fan. Yeah. But then again, the flip side of that coming out of that chain is you go on that park and you want you want to win the game so badly. Yeah, yeah. It's been since, but now you've got extra motor, you've got extra incentive, and you, and you know, you, you do want to use somebody's passing away as motivation. We we didn't generally want to play the game, but we had to try and turn our mindset into that, uh, and mm. we couldn't. It was just it was too much to get over. Yeah. And like I say, the results after that affected everybody hugely. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Wow. Well, I love that. Um, I do want to ask you a question, Bridgie. When you were playing in the Champions League, I know we, we talked a little bit about it when you were showing the the shirts on the wall there. Was there a team that you played where you were just like, can't even get near these guys? Like, these oh, are yeah. ridiculous. 
said that that one there, Barcelona, mate. Yeah. It was like I, I I used to love playing Pro Evolution Soccer on the computer. So me and Harry yeah. Kuehl, me and Harry Kuehl would play. He was my next door neighbour. Nothing better. Lee Boy lived over the road. We had a coldy sack of just Leeds United. It was class, and. Um, it was playing golf against Harry Kuehl. Can I beat him at that? Can I beat my Pro Evolution soccer? Can I... Who can eat a pizza the quickest? Who can down a Smirnoff ice the quickest? It was just... Everything was a competition. Mate, everything was a competition between me and him. It was like the brother that I never had. And, you know, the moments we've had, the competition, would play Pro Evolution soccer. And I started off where I could just smash him completely and destroy him. And I would run rings around him, on, and then Harry worked and practiced at it, and he came good. So we'd have good competitive games, and then he got the upper hand in the end. But I look back to the games when when you talk about teams like Barca, it, it's almost like me now going back on a computer and playing my kid at FIFA. I've got no chance. He keeps the ball for 10, 15 minutes, and I'm like, just just press X and put it in the direction of my player so I can get it and just have a touch of the ball. We couldn't get near them, mate. It was... Total wow. domination, the movement, the rotations that they had, the players that they had, the Dutch philosophy to keep the ball as well, uh, which is the boss away. Who, who was the manager at the you time? No, it is. That's Barcelona. a great question, lad. You're going you're gonna to think I'm a right idiot. I don't honestly know who Let it was. Let me see if I can find it. What year was it? What year been, was it? Um, hang on. Uh, 2000-2001 season. Maybe Rijkaard or Van Gaal? I think it was um, I think it was Van Gaal, you know. Van Gaal, yeah. Maybe Van Gaal, yeah. Getting it up now. That's I always find that so interesting when we speak to pros. Um because like some pros just say, Yeah, we couldn't get near him. Like we had Neil Early on the podcast this morning. Um I don't know if you know Neil Early, he plays for Lincoln, played for Blackpool in Premier League. He's a very, very good friend of mine. He was just saying that when he went to Stamford Bridge they were four 0 down after twenty minutes. Just couldn't get, couldn't get a touch of the ball. And I always, like, I, I think every player in their career has had that moment where you like, you feel out of your depth. That was incredible. I mean, Philip yeah. Koku played as the number six. Um, so there was Frank. There was Frank De Boer. I don't know who the other centre half was. Um, right Zigo was on the on the right. But what had happened? The two of us. Philip Koku kept getting on the ball and we didn't want to bring one of our defensive midfielders out to come and close him down. So my job was to sit in the six and entertain him. We'll just try and show it to one centre-half. And then the cent- they, they just had a way. They always knew how to find the extra player. And then what Philip Koku would do, then he would go and stand, if I was marking him, he would go and stand in between the two centre-halves. The two centre-halves would split out wide and then somebody else would drop in the pocket and get the ball up. They just had, like I say, when I go back to tactically, we were a good 4-4-2. <laughs> like the old Mike Bassett even manager and we didn't have the nose tactically as a manager to say how do we break this style of play down they were streets ahead absolutely streets ahead the gaffer was uh, Sarah Sarah Ferrer Sarah Ferrer is that not one of your Twitter followers <laughs> yeah. that's what it says here <laughs> no I'm telling you now Barca 4 leads nil David O'Leary your yeah. gaffer I wouldn't have known oh, that, mate. That's uh, it's not not a name that rolls off the tongue, to be fair. So yeah, that was Sarah Ferrer. Never heard of it. He would. He <laughs> mustn't have been there that long. No, I don't think so. But it says here four nil. Love it. Starting That's teams and the goals and stuff. There's highlights. Who, who scored? Who scored the goals there? Um, who I fought Barca? Two. It was four nil. Rivaldo. Clivert got Clivert got two. Yeah, Rivaldo and the boy. What a, yeah. 
Yeah, it was a, it was just a, an incredible thing to witness. The only other time I got smashed off the park, um, well, there was a few times in my career to be fair, but there was a, there was I, I hate saying it, it was Arsenal, the Arsenal team. They they had something yeah. something special. Yeah, they had when they had Henri, Dennis Bergkamp, uh, Vieira in the midfield with Pizzi, over Mars running at you with Robert Perez and Freddie. Mm. You just go, it was just a blitz. It was an onslaught. And when you wow. got it, you had to that break. You had to break really. down their defense as well, which was dynamic. So, the, there was one player. You, you'd, I remember I picked the ball up in the. I dropped off the centre halves, picked the ball up, just in that little pocket of space. And as I turned, and this leg came from nowhere, so I've, I've dropped off, got the ball. There's nobody in sight, and I'm thinking, right, I can turn here and get at these two, and face the attacking goal. And as I turned, this this leg just came from nowhere, wrapped around us. Won the ball, I went flying, and he went up the other end and ran about 50 yards. It was Patrick yeah. Vieira. I, mean, I don't know where he came from. Oh, he was just... Animal. He was horrendous to play against. <laughs> yeah, I, I love all that, mate. I just love stories. Speaking of, speaking of players, I just like... Bonjour. There was one name that stood out to me um, on like the little research that we did. Um, moving on from your later days when you were at Bolton, which I gather wasn't necessarily the happiest time, but the man that he was so good there to name him twice, JJ Okocha. Give us, give us a little bit of insight <laughs> about JJ yeah. Kocha. Was a, a good, like, a, 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 I really liked watching him play. He was a phenomenal player. Do you know what it is? I'll give you, give you a few things on JJ. Just to give an idea of the type of guy he is, he used to have, he used to invite everybody, the players, to this uh, Chinese restaurant in Bolton. He would get all his family over to come as well. And it was just, I think we'd have a party about once a month. JJ just loved being out. He loved socialising. When I mean going out, I don't mean going out and partying. He loved to get people together. That was their culture. And it was it was so refreshing to to have a foreigner that wasn't coming in to get your culture. He was actually spreading his culture out and everybody was embracing. It was fantastic. So he turned up at the training ground this day in this he had a black Ferrari and it came into training ground. I'll never forget. He drove he drove a Bentley GT. That was what I loved about JJ as well. Not only was he he had one of the best cars ever, but he came in this clapped out black Ferrari this day. And this will give you an idea of how much money and how much praise this guy had. I said to him, I said, JJ, I said, another car. He said, I said, this one looks a bit old and vintage. He said, he was like, look, my friend, look. He said, it's got rust in the floor. And I looked inside his car. Because I, I love my cars. I love them. And I looked in and it was, it was a rust bucket. And I said, what have you done to this? He says, I didn't know that I had it in a, an apartment in London. It's been in London for 12 <laughs> years, just in the garage. And I was like, oh, man. That's when you know you got too much money. The guy's finding a Ferrari no, yeah, in his garage. Yeah, he had it. Last in cars. <laughs> Find a Ferrari in his garage. So, but what what JJ would do things in training where you would just kind of go, stop. Can you do? Can you do that again? When not not in the games, he would do stuff in the warm ups, and you'd go, JJ, show me that, please. I need to learn. And you, there's some of the things that you could do were just mind blowing. And then you'd go into the game, and you'd you'd be training, practicing, and he would still do them, and you'd go. You turn to one of the other lads and goes, he's serious, he's actually pulling it off in a game. Like It's just mad what he could do. And I've got the utmost respect for any guy. There was one training session, getting nutmegged once is bad enough. <clears throat> JJ nutmegged me three or four times in one session. And the same goes, if you get done three times, you get, you've got to go and stand and stand at home with that player and he'll put you on the mantelpiece of a boost fireplace. <laughs> and you say, I'll put you there for the night. So I had to no. go and stand on JJ Jacotta's front porch for an hour just to make sure that That is gold. He killed what me, man. A he's player.
Um, just got just backing up from what Jules was saying, Bridgie. You've you've played with some massive clubs: Sunderland, Newcastle, and Leeds. Obviously, three in my eyes, they're three massive clubs with with passionate fans. You know, um, I want to talk about y- your Newcastle days because for me, looking looking at looking at your bio there, it, it was like the Newcastle Newcastle days where they had some incredible players. You know, like Alan Shearer. What was it like at Newcastle, Bridgie, and and playing for such a huge club and big fan base like that as well? well probably the only time I've seen my dad crying, he's cried. I was obviously being a Newcastle fan. He had to come and watch me play for Sunderland for five years, which he didn't really enjoy. Um, so the first, to see my father cry when I lined up for Newcastle and the, the song was played, that was that was an an important moment for him. But I went at the wrong time. I've taught, I was still trying to find my level after injury at Leeds and I went there for six months with Bobby Robson. Every time I played against Newcastle, I scored a goal against them. And Bobby was a big... Alan Shearer was um, there with Bobby Robson. They were very good friends with a guy called Jack Hickson who was a local scout from the area. So when, when <clears> it came to the last six months of my contract at Leeds, I'd gone up there to, to be with Newcastle to try and earn a contract for the following year. And it was just incredible to walk in that training ground. Even though Bobby Robson called when I signed, he actually said, welcome to the club, Gary. He didn't know my bloody name. But it was so funny. <laughs> so, it, I, I didn't know how to take that at first, but it's just, it was just Bobby was, you know, he was blessing me. He was, he was always testing me and doing stuff. And it's like, it, to get there, Jonathan Woodgate was already there. Lee Boyer was already there from Leeds. So we had that connection. Alan Shearer I was friendly with. Shay Given used to be my roommate at Sunderland when he came on loan and we got promoted together. So there was a lot of good dynamics there. And, you know, when you've got a manager like Bobby Robson, he, he wasn't on the training park every day giving out the sessions. We had John Carver, who was the old coach many years ago that told me I was crap, but he, he had to coach me um, <laughs> for his team. So he, he would do all the stuff. Bobby was like the father figure. Now, I learned a lot of Bobby regarding man management when I look back, how he would... Yeah. What he would do if you weren't in the team, he would say, "Listen, lads, the ones that aren't in the team or on the bench, you come in my office. You can sit down and we'll talk this over, and I'll tell you yeah, where, right what you can do to improve for next week." There's not many managers do that. It was an open, no, honest yeah, relationship, yeah. and I think a lot. That's why Bobby had so, such a success in Europe. I think because he had that policy with the media and everybody. And if you get a chance to watch more yeah, than was, a manager, which is Doco, I fell asleep because he was quite late, but I've watched it's about forty just, minutes. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. Cried my eyes out at the end just because I remember all the memories. So he was such a f- father figure of a, of a coach and a manager. Facilities at Newcastle were unbelievable. But what, what had happened, I was still going through that transition periodly. I couldn't really, I wanted, I knew where I wanted to be and had to be, but I couldn't, I couldn't get there. And that was, that was a frustrating time for myself. So I never, I never got a goal. There was a moment against Marseille in the semi-finals. There's a, there's a shot of me just putting a ball wide of the post and you see Bartes diving and he's kind of like looking to see if the ball's gone in the net and I just put it on an angle wide and I look back and think, if that goal goes in, I get a contract uh, and I, it just didn't it, it didn't come. I would have loved another whole season to get fit and prepared again. I was trying, I was playing catch-up and it, it was never going to happen. So again, it was very fond memories because you're playing for your local club, your place where you've grown up. Uh, the fans embraced us again even though I had five years at Sunderland they, they didn't mind they knew I was a local boy they knew I'd been part of the academy and it was just uh, like I say to be part of a, another huge club was great but the timing of it was was shocking from yeah. my, my part to be fair I want to I just but, sorry about... but I learned a lot off the likes of Shearer 
And yeah, I was going to ask you then. People were because what I, what I learned there, there was I see a player like Mark Viduga, and Mark Viduga at Leeds United was unstoppable on his day. He had a natural ability. Vaduk was a lazy man. He wouldn't do the extra yards in training. He was the last one in the train. He was the first one to leave. He had a natural ability. He should have been and could have been the best player in the world. Harry Keel practiced his trade after train and we would do the extras and things like that. So you can see their career. When I went to Newcastle, Alan made sure he motivated everybody. He, he ran the dressing room in the fact that he set the standards. And he would say, after training Bridgie, come on, we're going to go and do this shooting drill. We're going to do that. But again, it wouldn't be a, like a fake shooting drill on the edge of the box where you played in the coach, you would lay off the side and you'd get a shot. He would, it, everything had to be for a purpose of where Alan was going to be in that particular moment in the game. And it had to be that burst of energy, whether it was getting a header or a cross, it would have to be turn the defender or a mannequin. But there was always something behind what he would do. And he'd never just do a shooting drill for the sake of doing a shooting drill. You've always got to make a game realistic. And he hated the fact that the things called shot boxes, he hated it. He hated it. He said, I'm never going to do this in the game, so why practice it here now? And I'm like, well, sometimes you might need to do that, Alan. It's a bit of fun. Nah, I only practice what I need to get through. It was, this, the mindset of the man was unbelievable. And yeah, I learned was, a hell of a lot wow. off him. I, I was going to say, like, because he's the all-time Premier League top goal scorer. Like, you know. Yeah. Couldn't. Fact, I mean, if you ask Alan to do, oh, I might be a bit harsh on Alan here. Like, uh, <laughs> he'd probably kill us for saying this. If you ask him to do 100 keepy-ups, he'd be like, why? What's the point? I'm not bothered at doing that. He said, you give me a ball, I'll break the back of that net five times out of five. <laughs> yeah, but well, it's true, though, isn't it? Can you do that, young man? He said, what, what's that juggling going to do? I'm like, oh, God, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? 99 step-overs. Like, it just wasn't his game, so he evolved. and he. It's people like, I admire people like, you talk about the greats of the game. I mean, I think we're blessed that we get to witness Messi and Ronaldo on a regular basis, two guys in the same same era that we've seen compete I think it's amazing I think they've enjoyed that as well because they bounce off each other but I look at your likes of your Paul Scholes your Teddy Sheringham's your Alan Shearer's players that didn't have that much pace but they went through they, they evolved their game evolved when they lost their pace how did they evolve they, be, they still had this and they still worked damn hard and that's in yeah. your Ryan Giggsy Giggsy had pace but how did he go through so many eras he, he looked after himself he was a professional and there's, there's moments when I look back and think when I was doing the drinking competitions, doing Smirnoffs, you know what I mean? Did, did I really need that in my life? Probably not. <laughs> I, I've got right in front of me here, Bridgie, your all-time uh, team that you played with because you did it with Opta Sport. Oh, God. I just, yeah, yeah, I just want to reel off the team that you've chosen and it's absolutely ridiculous. So goalkeeper, you've gone Shea Given, right back, yeah. Gary, Ker- Ga- Gary Kelly. Centre-back, Jonathan Woodgate and Rio Ferdinand. Left-back, Ian Hart. Right-wing, Lee Bowyer. Central midfielders, JJ Okocha, Olivier Decourt. Uh, Left-wing, Harry Kuehl. And then up top, Alan Shearer, Kevin Phillips. How's that for yeah, a team? I noticed boys? how I didn't pick myself. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I want to talk about Kevin Phillips. He was an absolute yeah. goal bags yeah. man. Yeah. Kevin Phillips. Yeah. What, was he, what was he like? Rick, you, you were there when Niall Quinn... Now come in flicking and on Kevin Phillips running off him. Yeah, so this is this is the thing. I mean, Kev was a what stories like Kev Phillips and Jamie Vardy's when you come from non-league, you've been out of the game, you've you've found another avenue. Kevin that Kev had that similar scenario that Jamie Vardy did. He he got into the game late. Chris Waddle did, he worked in a sausage factory. So that <laughs> they, they went somewhere else to find their way back to football and, and Kev 
when he came in over, we were in Ireland pre-season, we signed Kevin Phillips and he'd come from Watford. So he'd had a spell. And again, it came back to seeing somebody for the first couple of days in training. You, you know, they're coming for your job. So there's another striker. So I'm going, hang on a minute. You're not coming in here. There's myself, Danny Diccio and Al Quinn. You've got to be offering something special. You've got to show something, you know, to, to not, not to prove that you're here, but you, I've got to up my game to compete. You're not getting it this easy. And two days into training, I'm looking at Kev and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a hell of a battle. He, 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 his awareness of where the goal was when he was facing it, he, he'd always have this little glance and he would, just before he hit the ball, he would have a glance see where the keeper was. But when he had his back to goal, I don't know what it was, he had this ability to know exactly where the keeper was as well, whether he had to dink them or, or what. Now, they were his solo goals, but what he did bond, we all benefited off Niall Quinn. Shane just mentioned him. We had a little and large combination. Quinny, I think if you ask, I uh, saw an interview with Robbie Keane, he talked about Ireland, how he had the privilege and honour of playing alongside Niall Quinn because he was a tall presence. He would actually attract defenders to him. And you found yourself with a lot more space. You'd, if you read his flick-ons, the knockbacks. And the, so don't get us wrong, Kevin was an amazing finisher. You could find the back of the net. They had an outstanding partnership. The downside to that, which it, it upset me a bit after Kev, he never used to talk about Nell Quinn. He never really gave Quinny the credit that he deserves. So that, that really affected and upset me that Kev, whenever he taught, never gave any credit to Quinny because the partnership that they had, Kev was fantastic. He played for England, but he had a great dynamics with Quinny. He never, when Quinny never played, Kevin never really got as many goals as he did with Danny Dicci or myself. The dynamics, Quinny, Quinny was, I think, that, that partnership, whoever, out of the four of us, there was the four strikers, Danny Diccio, tall lad, Quinny, tall lad, me and Kev, shorter. So the managers knew what they wanted. They wanted a little large combination. Yeah, right. And I think everybody that played with Quinny, if you look at the ratio of the games, had the best partnership when they played with Niles. So it speaks volumes for me. But Kev, again, Quinny would do the little extras, but he was getting older, so I never saw. But Kev was religiously shooting balls in practice sessions. It was me him and the coach was a guy called Brian Robson, but it was Pop Robson, not the actual Man United Robson. Uh, he, was a, he was a coach and just a great goal scorer. So again, I, I, it comes <laughs> back to, you've got to practice what, you, what your game is. If you don't practice, like I look at Vaduks, you get that, you're going to go so far and he had a great career, but after football, do we see Vaduks? No, he, he, you know, it's kind of easy life. The, the pros, the ones that set themselves stands and goals, they'll go all the way and they'll do that throughout their life. Yeah, I like that, boys. Crazy, yeah. Um, obviously, I know you're you're very busy, um, Bridgie and stuff. So. Oh yeah, I've got loads on today, Shane. Loads on, mate. Loads on. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, we were just going through your Wikipedia and stuff. Um, you went to Carlisle, then to Hull, and then obviously you you moved to the A League on loan. Um, just wanted to know how did that come about? A League came came about. I'd fallen out with Phil Brown at Hull City. I'd oh, been yeah. he'd been my assistant manager at Bolton Wanderers. Now Sam Adice was. Bloody brilliant. He was ahead of his time, Sam, whether it was nutrition, um, analysis footage, he had the Prozone stats. And they also used to do DVD sessions with, with you and get you in, which I never had at Leeds. Can you believe? We didn't do anything like that. We didn't have the, the nutrition side of it. We didn't have the Prozone stats to show us. It. Like I say, when I look back, the things that we could have had, yeah. where we could have been. So Sam was ahead of his game. And the analysis side of it, and sitting down and saying, how do we get Michael Bridges to be this Michael Bridges? Showing you all your goals from the past, the situations you're in. 
he made you feel unbelievable. But his assistant manager, Phil Brown, was a complete and utter arsehole, to be fair. I've got to be honest with you. He was he was a complete opposite of Sam. And he, he, I, it just didn't sit well with me. That And we didn't get on. So when he when I was at Hull City, Phil Brown got the job. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. I've had, I've had issues with this guy in the past. But I thought, I've got a two-year deal. We see it out. And... Long story short, we didn't see eye to eye. He, he, there was a few things that went on between me and him at the football club, and I just said, you know what it is? I don't need this in my life, mate. I said, you've got a year, I've got two years, I'll be here longer than you, which is a stupid thing to say as a pro, but he, he put us past the point of no return. And I just needed a fresh start, and I went out on loan. And I was going to go down to Walsall Football Club to, get, to go on loan just to get away. And I thought, no, I'll just, I've just had twins. I'm going to stay with the stay in the hole and just see if I can ride this out. And I just wasn't enjoying going into the training ground. Nick Barnby was there with Dean Windass. They were saying, listen, you've, you've missed so much with injury. You don't want to be here under this guy. Because Phil Parkinson loved us, the previous manager mm. who signed us. And it's just incredible. When your manager changes, it, you, you're not everybody's cup of tea. We've got past history. He held a grudge. So the opportunity came up via Dwight York, who said Sydney FC um, have, have got an interest and we had the same agent at the time. And I said, Sydney FC. I said, I didn't want to go to Walsall because of the family. <laughs> I didn't want to go to bloody Sydney FC. Uh, anyway, me and the wife, we just decided to have a, have a chat to each other. We said it would be a, an interesting experience. It was a, a, you know, like a, I think it was six month loan. And we had a, had a sample of it. Now I loved Australia after that. I, I could see the A-League was going somewhere. We had Janino was, was the marquee player. It was a, just a blessing to be able to sit next to him in the dressing room and um, chat to him about football and World Cup and what he did at Middlesbrough. Uh, and learned, learned a lot of him as well, how he had a dislocated shoulder. He was the marquee player. A lot of them would have just stopped and taken their money, but Ginny didn't want the operation. He said, I've got to play for the fans. And he didn't play the best of his ability, but the, him to want to play and not to get the operation because he didn't want to be seen as a money grabber, I hold him in the highest regard. And... I just loved Australia. And when, the, when it was cut short and I went back because I had to get back to the January window, I said to my wife, I said, we'll, we'll try and get back to the A-League at some point. Don't know when that's going to be, but I think yeah. it'll be a great place to go and retire to and have a few more years because what I was able to do, Shane, I didn't have to sit on the bike and warm my ankle up in the cold mornings. I didn't have to do the extra 45-minute prehab to get my body ready to go out and train. The, the warmth played such a dividend. Um, on my body, I've got to be honest with you. And I, I noticed that myself. I, I don't know what it was, whether it was mentally or just physically from the, the heat. I was able to go out and enjoy it. And I didn't feel like I had rigor mortis and I was stiff all over <laughs> my joints. It was it was a huge transition. So that that's where I fell in love with it. And lo and behold, a year later, or a year and a half later, after going back to, to Carlisle, um, the opportunity came to come to Newcastle Jets and we, we jumped at it and embraced it and I said to Kate listen I've got a two year deal let's let's finish out the career I extended that by another year and a bit and got the passport and said that, that's it the only thing that'll take us back is coaching um, but apart from that the lifestyle's too good out here for the kids yeah it's incredible isn't it for the it's kids. just a shame that the A-League's come to such an abrupt halt and there's so much turmoil over the way football's um, perceived and run over here for the last three or four years. It's been a, been a big downside to the game for me because it's the biggest growing sport in women's, women's sport uh, mm. in, in the world for ratio. It's the biggest, you know, the population or the, the amount of kids that are playing at grassroots, as usual, no, because you're doing yeah. sessions for everybody. 
it's yeah. it's been grown, but it, it's the people at the top end that have put a kind of this block on it where the egos have kicked in and it hasn't. Everybody's wanted their own piece of the pie rather than the the benefit and the bigger picture of the game in this country. Mm-hmm. And now we've got a guy in charge called James Johnson. I've got to be honest, he he's a guy that's come from playing the game. He's gone through the PFA over here and looked after players. Really he man. went and worked for FIFA in the Oceanic region. Then he went and worked for FIFA head head division. Man City headhunted him and took him on at the City group, so that speaks dividends now. He's back in charge of the game. If there was anybody else in charge of the game, I would say that the A-League would be finished, it would be done and dusted, and the future of football would be in turmoil. With James in charge, I'm telling you that he wants to leave a legacy and do something special, and I, I believe that he can. He, he'll, he'll pull something off, he'll do something to get everybody back on board. So, fingers crossed. Mm. Fingers crossed indeed. We, myself, Jules and Shane, really want to see some positive changes because we do see, like you said, with what we do, we do see the impact that it's that it's having at the bottom because so many people are training. Like you said, the amount of young girls that we're coaching right now is through the roof. There's been um, a lot of a lot of money has gone out of the game from people that have come in and said, oh, we can change the, the curriculum and the philosophy of this club and country and, and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, kids just want to play, so let them play. When, when we're putting yeah. so many restrictions on, I'm, I'm one of them. I, I was backstreet five-a-side football. You learn your trade, and then you <clears> then you evolve into a club. Just let them play and enjoy it. I see too many coaches over here having a team talk, and let's say an hour session or two-hour session. Out of an hour session, some coaches I might see stop and talk to kids 15, 20 minutes in that session. I'm like, wow, please, let them play. Yeah, wow, definitely, totally right. Yeah. How how are you finding managing in the NPL, Bridgie? Huh. Uh, I've I've enjoyed coaching because it, it's good to get back. I went down to Wollongong Wolves with Luke Wilkshire, and I loved the eight weeks that we had together pre-season. But the journey down four hours drive there and four hours drive back. Yeah, I mean, that's sure. commitment. I was thinking about that's like me going from Newcastle in England down to London, and I wouldn't do that. So, mm. so it, it took it it took its toll on us that way. Um, and then came came back to do it in the MPL in Newcastle with the Lampton Jaffers. So there was a lot of the ex-Jets kids that I coached when they were with the Newcastle Jets Academy that had been released later on. So getting them back on board uh, was fantastic. Um, coaching them, working with a guy called James Pascoe who works at one of the local schools in the region. It's been great. And like you say, just to, to give, I mean, what we, it, it's, it's not pro football, it's amateur football. And it's three nights a week that we were we were coaching game on the weekend, so it's a it's a good part of your life to go and do that. But there's nothing better than passing passing on knowledge and coaching and getting back into the groove. And you know you know there's a few lads will test you, and because I went and played for you, and you, you'll get a few lads kicking you, going, "You're a has been, you're a wanna be." And I'm like, listen, I'm just here to enjoy it, lads. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's been funny coming back to actually coach some of them and making making the bond again, having a having a laugh. But to to learn that. To go through the badges and the thing, I, I I don't want to get in too many bad habits. You know, there's there's things that I want to implicate, but we haven't got the budgets what what we always used to at the Jets. So you've got to got to be careful that you're not overstepping your mark when you're wanting to get things that is going to help the club, but they haven't got the budget. So you've again, it's like when I had to find my career and find my level as a coach. You've got to find your level <laughs> and see what your boundaries are at the MPL. I don't want to brainwash the boys. They've got to come and enjoy it. They work all day. Fantastic, They've got jobs. The last thing they want to come in and is sit down and me doing a 29-page PowerPoint how we should be playing next week and things like that. The lads <laughs> want to get out yeah. there and train and enjoy it. They want, they want a bit of information, and I think that's the bit that I've had to learn. Like Instead of being setting the standards so high, just filter it through and give them, a, give them what information they need. Be a mentor. 
have a chat with them, but make it fun and, and let them enjoy the game. Love that. Can I come and play for you, Bridgie? Oh, that sounds, sounds <laughs> ledge, mate. This is simple, mate. Anytime, lad. <laughs> love it, love it. Oh, wow. Love it, lad. We have... um. We have a segment at the end, Bridgie. It's always uh, my favourite segment. I was going to say, we've got five or ten minutes of the finest left, or the, or the crap, oh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I've got, we do, um, we do, a, we do a segment, uh, a quick fire, quick fire questions. Uh, right. You have five, five seconds to answer. It's my favourite, favourite one. Um, <laughs> so You've got us go nervous now, man. I'm sick of quizzes. Uh, I've been doing them every nah, night for the, for the they're doctors. Not, there's no, I'd be used to this. There's only one, there's only one question that's a bit, Controversial, and not one pro has answered it yet. So we'll see if Bridgie, Bridgie will answer. Oh. It. Other than oh. that, though, that that I hope I can get you with a few head spinners here. But you have five seconds to answer, okay? And then if the Let's boys at the end, if the boys want to like add to it at the end, we can do with some interesting answers. You ready, Bridgie? All ready. Right. The, who's the best player you've played with? Uh, Harry Kiel. Ooh, best player you've played against. Uh, Rivaldo. Uh, best player at Sydney FC when you were there? Janino. Oh, oh, hang on. Yeah, Janino. Yeah, what a player. Best manager you've ever had? I said Steve Corica, but Janino. I love it. Best manager you've ever had? Mick McCarthy. Oh, uh, Big Mick. Big Mick. Best ground you've played at? Camp New. Oh, cheers. Most hostile ground you've ever played at? Galatasaray. Had to be, yeah. Wow. Best moment as a footballer? Hat-trick against Southampton. Yeah, we had that. We didn't talk about that. Uh, what do you enjoy more? Being a coach or doing media? Being a coach. Yeah, I like it. Um, what was more nerve-wracking? Making your professional debut... Or your debut on TV, media? Oh, professional debut. Gee, I mean, all day long. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're a natural at this, to be fair. It was a bit of a poor question. That. Um, Nike or Adidas? Adidas. Oh, I was, I was, I've got to stick with the brand. I was sponsored by five years with Adidas Predators, man. I used to go and clean the factory out in Stockport, come back with a <laughs> crap load of gear. It was brilliant. Oh, I love yeah. it. I got to swap um, jerseys with Adidas. I got to swap jerseys with Kobe Bryant. And he, bless him, obviously he's not with us any longer. He was a massive idol of mine. We did a, a function together and I swapped jersey with Kobe Bryant many years ago. No. I put his jersey on me wall upstairs. He's probably wow. got mine in his bin or something like that. He's washed <laughs> his car with it. But, mate, Adidas all day long. No way. That's incredible. You can send us that one if you want. <laughs> um, we asked, we, I love this one. Night out with the lads or night in with the missus? Night out with the lads. <laughs> Didn't you have to think about that? No hesitation, right? Hang on. If you could, here's a better one for you. If you could pick to have a night out with your mates and a barbecue, or to take your wife to a romantic destination, what would you pick? Number one, rare. Two, medium. Or three, well done. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Love it, Richie. Yeah, this is a big one. Messi or Ronaldo? Messi, football purist. Who's a better finisher, Alan Shearer or Kevin Phillips? Alan Shearer. Ooh. Best pair of boots you've ever had? Adidas Predators. Actually, oh. no. Oh, man, now I'm going to totally go against what I said. Umbra wishbones were the best. Um, <laughs> I remember I had a pair of them as well. 
Umbral Wishbone. No, I'll go with the Preds. I'll stick with the, the first ever Love Preds. It. Love them. Best goal you've ever scored? Best goal I ever scored would be a last-minute winner again against Southampton at Elland Road. It was a volley, side volley outside the box. We won the game 1-0 late on an injury. Oh, I love it. Time and it was just this one to celebrate as well. But it was a good, good, good side volley. Just the time and the technique, the moment of the game, everything added to it. I'll have to put that in like a little Instagram preview then. Write that down in my notes. Um, best piece of advice you ever got during your career? Niall Quinn said to me, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Oh, I like that one. Um, your footballing hero growing up? Chris Waddle. Love it. Um, best football game you've seen live? Oh, my. Five seconds, you're kidding us, aren't you? Um, <laughs> oh, man. I'll give you 15 on this one. Oh, you're kidding us, aren't you? <laughs> I can't. Surely uh, Liverpool Barca. Any game where Tottenham beat Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's steady on you. <laughs> I like this one. I like this one. Who's your best mate in football? Yeah. Best mate in football would be... Oh, there's a few, man. But uh, it's got to be one of the Leeds boys. It would be Harry Keogh. Harry Keogh, uh, yeah. Ian Hart, Woody, Keno. We're all together. There's a massive bond. But probably uh, one of them. Um Ryan's on that. What uh, I wouldn't ask that. I was going to say, what's better, being a coach or a player? Surely a player. Yeah, yeah, all day. Uh, best ever music album. Oh, Bon Jovi. Oh, there you go. Oh, Michael Jackson, bad. I didn't mind that one, but Bon Bon Jovi. Yeah, living That's on a big. prayer. Yeah, uh, the boys love this one, including all sports. Who is the greatest athlete ever? Michael Jordan, more so now since I've seen the documentary. But I, I love me golf, so Tiger Woods is up there because of what he achieved in golf. But uh, after the documentary, Jordan, I know it's on your Instagram, Bridgie. You like a bit of golf. You were playing at Coinda Waters. I seen that. I love it, mate. Love it. That's, oh, yeah. that's the thing that gets us out of the house. Shut the phone off for four hours, and the wife doesn't know where I am. It's great. What a course that is. <laughs> what's, your handic- what's your handicap, Bridgie, in golf? I'm off eleven at the minute. I'm trying to get the single figures. Ooh. Love I've that. been out to seven before, so I've got that <laughs> challenge again. Set goals, mate. Doesn't matter what it is. Can we go for a game of golf sometime? Me and Shane love a game of golf. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I wouldn't mind going to, um, down your way, Northbridge, for the foot golf or something like that. Yeah, we're, I'm a member at Northbridge. Right. Well, in fact, we'll, I'll tell you we'll a little... Uh, I'll, I'll beat you at golf in the morning with the clubs, and I'll beat you at golf with my feet in the afternoon. There you go. <laughs> you, have, you, have a job, you have a job cut out, Bridgie, trust me. <laughs> Shane... Bridgie, ask, ask me who's got the course record at Northbridge. I've, uh, who's got the course record at Northbridge? Love it, mate. Shane, you want to tell him? Sophie. He does. <laughs> I've got the course record there. You know, <laughs> nice. uh, most famous person you've got in your phone book? Most famous person? Oh, I'd have to say Chris Miles, Radio 1 DJ. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Rhino, I love that one. And then the last one is, what's the first app you open on your phone every morning? Oh, um, Instagram. Love it. Love it. What's the one that you've never had people answer? Oh, I missed that out, actually. Two questions, uh, actually. I I jumped that one, boys. Number eight. Number 
Oh, wait, you can ask the other one. The other one is a, a player that you think was stealing a living. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Right. Who is stealing a living? <laughs> Seth Johnson. Oh, wow. <laughs> Love it. He played for England. He played for England, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. Brilliant. He came from Derby to sign for Leeds and he was, you know, he came to double his wage and then he ended up on like, I don't know, multi-millions a year and he was like, what the hell? He used to call oh, Ridsdale Santa Claus and I was like, oh my God, this is where <laughs> ridiculous. Bridgie, I've, had, I've actually missed out a really big one as well. I, don't, I must be just losing my spot here on the sheet. This The funniest player you've ever come across in your career. Oh man, without a shadow of a doubt, Jonathan Woodgate. Yeah. Can you give us a can you give us a little story of what he was like? Just, just he was just sick. He was mad. He was crude. He was funny. Um, he, I mean, listen, he, he's he's no oil paint. He's absolutely horrendous. He's got we used to call him the llama because he's got this long face on him and he used to, like, he looked like a llama. <laughs> so the things were woody. He was just a pest. He was one of them players. Like I would hate the coach. I would love him to be my player, but having to deal with him and the way he used to mess around and just like. You'd see the gaffer setting stuff up and Woody would move discs and cones and bibs and all that. He would be <laughs> a nightmare. And the, the best part about Woody, we, we used to have a thing called the shit player of the week, which was a yellow jersey on us. Whoever had it the worst week in training, you had to wear the yellow, the yellow bib with I've had a shitter on it and you'd all have to sign it. And Woodgate decided to take a whole new level. I, I don't know if you've heard us talk about this in the past in other podcasts, but he... He went and bought a yellow Robin Reliance, which was like the only fools and horses Del Boy thing, drove it into the training ground. And basically the worst player of the week had to drive that into the stadium in front of the fans. <laughs> the first player to get it, there's a great picture online of Ian Hart sat on the bonnet of this yellow Robin Reliance with all the us lot laughing the background with club suits on and all the fans having a go. And it was just, it took it to a whole new level. Um, of, of banter, quality. it was just brilliant because it, 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 you know, it made you humble. The fans loved it; they embraced it. And I think I don't know what he paid for it—maybe fifteen hundred pound—and we ended up selling that for like thirty odd thousand at the end of the year. We got it done up with Leeds Brandon. We we signed the bonnet and we sold it to charity. So fantastic! Wow, it, that was just the banter we had. He was just mad, mate. He was mad. You know, you know the keyholes, the in hotel doors. Yeah, yeah. You know the spy holes. You can still do this to this day. Whenever you get in a spy hole, right and you go on the outside in the corridor, you can unscrew the eye hole. So there's, there's nothing on the other one on the inside. You can just unscrew the outside one. So what Woody would do, he nearly blinded me. He would knock on your door, he'd unscrew that. And as he came to look through the spy hole, he would just blast his water bottle through it and just into your eye, man. <laughs> and you can still do that to this day. So he was just, he would come up with pranks, mate. I don't know where he got them from, he was mental. He's a oh, manager now, isn't he? He's managing him. Yeah, yeah, him and saying, I wonder if you have you got any players that used to act like you? He says, No, they wouldn't be at this club. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Love that. Um, I think my last question for you, Bridges, is what what is your future plans? What what does the future hold for, for Michael Bridges? Um, future plans, great question. It's like I say, I love to have, have an idea and have a plan, have direction. COVID, obviously, around the world has put a massive spanner in the works for that, along with so many other people. So I've gone through all the badges, just ready to tick off the pro diploma coaching for AFC. I know what I want to do. I want to be, want to be a coach. I want to, whether, they call it coach, I want to manage. Yeah. yeah. I enjoy talking and handle the media side of it. I know there's a lot more coming with leadership, we understand you. You want to pass on knowledge and be a mentor. So I, I, I don't like just to use the word coach. 
I like coaches are coaches. I like I'm used to having like a bit of a seniority. I used to know when the manager or the gaffer was in our building or when he was on the training park. You mm. you, you need that authority. So the that that's I want I want to be a manager, and where that where that will be I don't know. I've I went back to England for an interview with Carlisle United last um, before. Resigned the previous manager when Presley got sacked. I went over, presented myself. I uh, was prepared for that. Really enjoyed the process of going through it um, to have a look and go back to a club where, like you say, I found the love of football again. Still got a very good bond with the fans and the the owners over there. So that was nice to go back. Sadly, didn't get it, but you learn again. What did I do wrong? Where could I have done better? You, you ask them for feedback and advice, so you can get yourself tooled up again for when you do it again and and go again. So, like I say, I. I I've got a vision, I've got a plan in the next five years to get into to management. At the moment, the media's paying the bills and keeping the family keeping the family going. I'm doing the, the coaching with the MPLs to, to learn it from the bottom end right the way at the top. And yeah, right. when the timing is right, I will be ready. And I, but I'm not just going to jump at any job, Lee. I'll, I'll, I want to make sure it's the right opportunity. There's a few things came up in Thailand. I wasn't happy with it. Oh. Uh, didn't check out the, the clubs and did a bit of background research turned it down politely and then you find out somebody else got the job from Australia and they took it the last of five weeks. So they didn't do the homework. So you've, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're working out what you're going into and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I'm, I'm ready, but it's got to be the right opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Well, all the best for that Bridgie. I hope it all works out for you, mate. And like I said, when the, um, all these rules go away, the COVID goes away, it'd be great for the three of us to have a coffee and we'd love to invite you down to the office, mate. Cause I know we've been talking about that on the phone and, I think no, Shane definitely. Def- I'd, I'd, I'd love to the golf clubs. get involved, mate, and have a like to see where they have a have a session with you, do some stuff, bang ideas out about like different drills and whatnot. Um, but oh. I look forward to it, lads. I appreciate you having us on, and to all your viewers, um, stay safe, stay well, keep keep exercising, keep practicing. And if any of you, it's a big thing, and the one thing I will say, it's a big thing in men, in the men's game. Women listen to each other. Women talk to each other. They actually listen, hold it in here, and it doesn't go out this year. A lot of men, when you talk, you don't want to say to your friends or your mates or your colleagues, oh, listen, I'm struggling or I need a bit of advice for this. It's all about sport or it's about, oh, we'll have a drink here, we'll do this. You just just if you need to talk, ask ask questions. There's always somebody out there will have an answer for you or be able to give you a mm. direction. Um, it's just a, a big thing that we need to change the whole taboo subject of men's health and that we, we think everybody's hunky-dory and everybody's fine because life is like that. So that's the All only right. bit of advice that I can pass on. Get help if you need it. Don't be, don't be um, quiet and silent about it. Amazing, mate. And Pat, Man, listen, if, if, uh, if you can get us on up the sport, we're here whenever you want. Like, we'll come on. <laughs> you know? Sort it out. I've told you, man. <laughs> You're more than welcome. We'll sort. We just need to get these clinics going and these sessions going. And um, yeah, yeah. Like, doing it online with Optus, it was interesting. I was doing it from my garage, but it was just makeshift, you know what I mean? And, so you can you can you boys can give me some advice on that as well because it's again it's it's all about trying to educate the next generation and 100%. I, I don't know everything you guys don't know everything so that's why we've all got to collaborate and come up with new ideas. All right. Yeah, it's been one of my favorite one of my favorite podcasts, mate. Really enjoyed yeah, it. Good. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, legends. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that podcast. Please follow us on all our social media platforms and don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you on the next one.